Hello everyone and welcome to the Neurodivergent Experience. I'm Jordan James, also known as the Autistic Photographer, and I'm joined by my co-host and very good friend, Simon Scott. For this episode of the Neurodivergent Experience, we are talking about meltdowns and emotional regulation. I'm going to just tell everyone now who's listening, I'm actually halfway into a meltdown. I had a lot of problems setting up this whole episode with the camera and the microphone. It's been hard to watch. Yeah, it was was entertaining. I nearly didn't do it. I admit, I was like, you know what? I don't think I can do this. But I'm here and I'm thinking, do you know what? This is actually a really good time to do it because... I can sort of experience a meltdown and you can experience the meltdown with me. And I can show you how something that nearly ended up with my camera being thrown across the room and my microphone in the bin is actually going to result in something positive and it's going to be a great episode, I feel it. So I'm going to explain to everyone what a meltdown feels like, but from a, like a layman's term, neurotypical perspective. You're driving in a car, you're not speeding, you're actually not doing anything wrong, you're cruising along, everything is fine, you feel fine. You're a bit tired, it's a long journey, it's raining now, suddenly things are starting to get a little bit more difficult. Then, out of the blue, you're not expecting it, a rabbit jumps into the middle of the road. Without thinking, you just swerve. And all of a sudden, you're off the road and you are heading down a very, very steep bank. At the bottom of this bank, there is another main road, like a dual carriageway full of cars. You go to slam on your brakes. Suddenly, the brakes aren't working. You have no control. Nothing that has happened is your fault. But you are going to do damage and you are scared. You are worried and you are going to smash straight into oncoming traffic. And when you do, everyone is going to blame you. Everyone is going to say it's your fault. Everyone is going to make you feel bad about it, even though you already do. And you are also going to be hurt by it. And you haven't done anything wrong. In that moment, that's what it feels like to be in a meltdown and you have no control. You don't even know what's happening. That is literally the best way I've got to explain it. How does it feel for you, Simon? A meltdown for me feels like a hurricane coming into the house that is my headspace. I can feel it almost like bubbling up. It's like a magma core that's rising and rising. It sits in my chest and it is the barricades are going up this is really stressful. I'm struggling to breathe. I think the example that you've given is a very great analogy because it seems very accurate in that a lot of the time meltdowns for me are really horrific because of the aftermath. It's the repercussions. It's sometimes the guilt that I feel of things that I've said that I've not meant. I find during meltdowns sometimes, not only do I lash out physically, more to myself, I've never hurt or struck anybody else while I've had a meltdown. It's normally myself that I hurt. I have a, an unfortunate habit of banging my head on stuff. And it's not, I'm banging my head because I want to hurt myself. It's me banging my head almost as if to be like, 
get out of my head. Yeah, I know how that Whatever feels. is in there right now, this hurricane, get out of my head. And it's me banging my head against the wall, almost like hoping that the, the clarity of a bell ring will just clear this chaos that's overtaking my body. It's almost like, <laughs> like for fans of 80s wrestling, it's like when Hulk Hogan used to rip his t-shirt and Hulk out. It's like shaking his hands, shaking his hair, going, ah, and it's like, oh, here he comes. He's, you can't stop him. And I can feel that. I almost look down at my hands and it's like, yeah, it's like that magma chamber. It's like there's an eruption coming and I lose myself really massively. Say things that I don't mean. I think a lot of that comes from my fast brain and alexithemia of, I can't get out what I'm trying to say to somebody to explain to them how I'm feeling. And I skip through really important information. And then when people start asking me questions, they're going, well, you've just said this. So what does that mean? I've moved on. Sorry, I I moved on. We can't talk about that now. And I just spiral and it's like everything. It's almost like putting a brick on the accelerator and I'm still in first gear. It's like everything goes up and I'm either going to stall or I'm going to crash. And even talking about it now is making me feel quite anxious. Sometimes I almost feel like talking about a meltdown almost creates a meltdown because it's the memory of, of being in that space. I, I had a horrific meltdown on my mum's birthday and two days later I went back and was like, can we try again? Just because I had a really bad time at work. I had a contract, came to an end unexpectedly. Oh no. It was like my in-tray was just so full I threw it across the room. Uh, yeah. It's funny, actually, because there's different types of meltdowns. I'll speak about that in a minute. But the ones we're talking about are kind of, I call that the snap. It feels like a snap. You, you kind of feel like you're on the verge of something, like some, you feel something's boiling, and then all of a sudden it's overflowed, like cooking something, and you've got the lid on with boiling water. And if you cook it for too long, that water starts spilling out. It starts bubbling, spilling out, and you can feel it bubbling. Yeah, I always think of myself as like a big jug and you go, well, throughout the day, we're going to add little bits in that fill the jug up, that fill up your tolerance, fill up your patience. But I find I wake up and I'm carrying trauma. I'm carrying the fact that I didn't sleep very well because I am restless, carrying what I've already been worrying about, bills, adult life. And so my jug really is already two thirds full before I even wake up. So the room of tolerance and patience that I have is already minimal compared to my full capacity because just of life, my intro's full. So when meltdowns are coming, I find I wake up and I almost have an inch of room and anything could fall on me to the point of, I open the fridge and I've run out of milk. We're setting up the podcast and my camera just isn't focusing. And two days before when my jug is empty, it's fine. I can deal with my camera. If I've got an inch of room in my jug, I might have to buy a new camera because I might smash it before I fix it. Yeah, uh, Technology is the thing that sets me off the most because I'm so technical. I wouldn't say I have like a great technical understanding, but practically I can figure it out. If something isn't working for me or say I'm, I have a, <laughs> normally sometimes when I'm burnt out or I have a meltdown, I, I rearrange a room because it feels like I'm rearranging my headspace. I move things around a lot, but I'll get halfway through moving my living room around and I won't want to do it anymore. And I'll just rage. I'm like, why did I do that? And I just start hitting stuff and moving stuff around and thumping. And rather than putting something back, I'll just throw it in the bin. And I really cause 
damage, long like repercussions and damage to myself tomorrow when I have a meltdown because of the effects that happen the day before, the day before. And it, it adds up like a tax, a meltdown tax that accumulates if I don't let it out. Like we've talked about in a very early episode, Jordan, about that Coke bottle. You don't let it out. It's going to go bang. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of how I feel from a personal perspective anyway, how a meltdown may feel for me. So do you think a lot of the time, because you know meltdowns are, are traditionally a result of being overwhelmed or like sensory overloads, but I know that a lot of my meltdowns are just because things aren't going the way that I expect them to. And they actually don't have anything to do with that moment in time. It's a sensory overload. Mm. Hold on, dude. Well, this is just another thing. Hold on. My back in a minute. You okay? My, yeah, my laptop has decided to run out of battery, even though it was on charge all night. <sighs> Right, so yeah, I'm now even closer to having a meltdown. <laughs> Just in case um, people don't know, but it's important for everyone to realize, I thought I had everything done, everything was sorted, and all of a sudden, my battery is dying on my laptop, so I had to go and plug it in. And I, <laughs> I am feeling very, very wound up right now. So what I was saying is a lot of the time the snap happens and it's not a sensory thing that causes it. So, for example, I went on a photography trip with my family. I say photography trip. Uh, we went for a walk and I took my camera deliberately to take pictures of the sunset. When we got to the car park, I realized that I didn't have the correct lenses. I'd taken one lens, I'd forgotten the other lenses, I thought I had them, and I got so angry and I was pulling my camera out of the back seat and it got caught and I pulled it really hard and it swung around and it smashed me right on the head. Oh no, that would have sent me nuclear. I'm already having a meltdown and now I've just been smashed in the head by the camera and I just, <laughs> I kicked my wheel of my car because I thought like that's the only bit I can't damage. I just kicked it and Sylvia, she's just like, it's okay. Because of her reaction to it was calm, measured, and the kids, they're like, 16 to 18, and they're just like, it's okay, Dad. And Sylvia said the perfect thing. You're Joe James. It doesn't matter what lens you take, you will take a beautiful picture. I know you oh, will. Wow. That's amazing. You know what? You're right. It doesn't matter what lens I'm using, I will take a beautiful picture of something. All that rage, it just went. And you know what? I went out, there's a sunset, and I took some great pictures. I really, really did. Because it's not the fact that I didn't think that I could take a picture. It's just the fact that I expected something different. And it wasn't that moment that caused the meltdown. 
that was the snap. It was being mm. tired, hungry, having sensory issues. I can't exactly remember what I, what I did that day, but the reason why we were out is because I'd had a really, really hard day. And that is what happened. So it's always for me, it is that buildup of sensory issues, emotional issues, hunger. If I haven't eaten enough, don't sleep enough. I really struggle to rest because of my hyper brain, I guess. Like right now, I, I feel like I'm on the edge. But just talking to you, Simon, just makes me feel so much better. Just being able to talk about it and being able to measure it in my own head so I can go, okay, is it as bad as it's feeling? And I'm like, no, no, it's not because anything I'm doing can be fixed. I can do this. And I think a lot of that has to be down to the, the ADHD meds. Or the ability to focus, to not accelerate through those thoughts so progressively. Yeah. Rather than react, because I, I, I was close to reacting many times before this podcast. I haven't felt on the edge like that for quite some time. My, my mental health has been really, really good. And I just think I've just been very, very burnt out lately. I, I get a lot of demands on me because of who I am. And yeah, I'm not like a big celebrity. I would absolutely hate that if I was like really well known, but I'm well known enough, especially in the autistic community, that there's a lot of people that want a lot of things from me and that constantly asking me for things. And some people I've got all the time in the world for, and I will always do those things for them. But I don't think they realize that they're like, the 10th person that day that's asked me to do something and I've said yes to because I have a big problem saying no to people that I care about or people that I know. Simon, have you heard of the spoons? So as I understand the spoon theory, well, you start the day with a certain amount of spoons, it may be 15, it may be 20. You get a phone call, you don't want to pick up, that's a spoon gone. You have 19 left for the day. If you don't eat, you've lost three spoons. So you almost have your energy level measured by the amount of spoons you have in a day and the currency of losing them. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's it. I, I think a lot of people will allocate their own amount of spoons. And I think it's a good way of measuring when you've reached your own capacity. I mean, I don't need that as much now it's kind of a little bit like when you first start trying to balance your diet you do start counting calories you look on the back of packets and you count those calories but after a while if you've been doing that a long time and you're like oh i want an apple a banana and a packet of crisps you already know how many calories are in that because you've done it so many times experience. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same for me with the spoons. You know, when I first started like counting the spoons and I would wake up and, and I'd be like, okay, I am really, I'm still tired. I'd have my coffee. I go, am I still that tired? Because coffee like might give me some extra spoons, but I'd wake up sometimes mm. and I'd be like, do you know what? I've got like five spoons today. I have five spoons and one of them has already been used the package that I was expecting has been delayed or 
I'm looking on Facebook and I notice somebody said something bad about me and that's three gone. Like that's three. I've got two spoons left for the whole of the day. You would not believe the negative impact social media bullying. I wouldn't be able to think about anything else. It'd be like one comment that someone would say out of 99 comments and it would just sit in my head all the time. And that in itself could then cause a meltdown because it's my spoons have, have already been taken away. I find with comments like that, and this ties almost back into the meltdown as I'm thinking about it, whenever I have like a negative comment like that or something like that, it's not fresh. It's not like it's the only one. It gets added on top of all the other ones I've ever been told. So they, they have weight. It's like whenever I have a meltdown, I feel like an idiot and I almost am surrounded by all of the times when people have put me down and it's all, it feels like it's all happening all at once. Yeah, exactly. Like a, a, a grain of sand falling through a sand timer. It's just stacking up and that triangle's just getting higher and higher. And I find um, talking about it like we're doing now makes it a lot easier. But when it comes to having spoons, if you've already, like we discussed in a previous episode, if you're struggling with compulsive thoughts that you, you're really struggling to control and you're having negative comments added on top of that, you are throwing spoons out of the window quicker than you can count them. And we have to be really careful sometimes with the information and the access that we have in our minds when we're really low on spoons. Boundaries, I think, Jordan, are super important. It's, it's good to to know what your capacity is. And this is the part of the podcast where we can talk about emotional regulation. Yeah. It is possible to get those spoons back. You know, it's possible to recharge your battery. I remember seeing this wonderful image that somebody created of saying, okay, this is a neurotypical social battery. And this is a neurodivergent social battery. And the neurodivergent social battery was full and the neurotypical one was empty. And then it showed them the opposite way round after a social interaction. So the neurotypical, when they're by themselves, you know, this is obviously a generalization and it's just an image, but the neurotypical by themselves, their battery goes depletes, you know, they get like down, you know, they're boredom and yeah. yeah. Their battery yeah. goes up when they're around other people. Being around other people energizes them. Mm. Being around other people literally drains our battery. And it's not like, oh, it's because we, we're not happy. For us, it's difficult, especially when you're socializing with neurotypical people or just people that you, you don't have anything in common with or that you don't particularly get on with, you know, such as work, you know, you're, you're sort of put in situations a lot of the times where you might be around somebody that you don't particularly get on with. And it's mm. just so draining. And what makes us feel better is ironically being by ourselves. But for me, it's being around Sylvia, you know, because we don't always have to talk. We don't always have to socialize. We can just be in the same space and we, we get that energy back. 
because we know we're there for each other. So my emotional mm. regulation is usually Sylvia. And if Sylvia's not around, I have my dogs. I can just cuddle up with them or I can go for a walk. Exercise is a really good one for me because it, you know, it releases uh, dopamine, makes me very, very happy. If you're watching this, you're about to see that I've been squeezing Pooh Bear. <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of breath left. Just trying to get that energy back up and it has worked. You know, it does make me feel better. The other thing is your special interest. <laughs> Ironically, photography can be as much of a meltdown causer as a meltdown preventer. And I think that generally comes down to how much pressure I put on myself. So if I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go for a walk and take my camera with me, then it's an emotional regulator. If I do photography like I originally wanted it for, it's really helpful for my mental health. But as I got better at it, I think I put myself under more pressure to take more incredible photos. Like I went to Iceland and uh, it's like one moment Iceland's like the most beautiful place in the world and the next minute it's meltdown central. Do you feel like that with your hobbies, with your special interests? Oh, absolutely. If I play golf and I get paired with somebody who's rude, has poor etiquette, it starts to rain, I'm one bad shot away from Tomahawk in a club. And oh, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> I've had to really, really rein it in. I've had to work on it. I find when it comes to feeling a little bit burnt out and I start doing special interests, if I'm just doing something and I'm just hanging out and somebody starts like small talking with me, I find I go into what I think of is like a neurodivergent duologue. It's like I split into two. I have the the mask, which is, okay, be polite, do this, you know, talk to this, talk to that. And the goal is to just not come across as rude. There's no goal of trying to get information or enjoying a conversation. It's don't come across as rude. That's all I'm kind of thinking. And then there's the real me, which is kind of sat behind the mask, which is like, oh, just leave me alone. I just kind of want to just focus on this and do my own thing. That drains my battery twice. It's like plugging two things into one battery. I'm running my mask and myself off of one battery. It's why I feel drained. But when it comes to rebuilding that energy, I like to sit in a bit of a darker room. I like to kind of like sit outside and get loads of fresh air and not have a lot of sound around me. I put headphones on a lot. I listen to music. I listen to podcasts. I try and distract myself as much as I can away from my intray of what is causing me to feel. Well, we talked about it previously. I was feeling a little bit run down and burnt down and was worried that I wasn't going to be able to give 100% in editing and talking on this and being myself. So I had a day of turning my phone off. I watched football. I watched American football. I got a takeaway and went, right, non-negotiable. I'm allowed to do what I want today without guilt tripping myself. We've talked before, I've put money aside for days like that when I go, right, it's fine. It's in budget. So all of those things of like having almost like precautionary measures to help myself, which comes through experience. I mean, I'm, I'm very early in my journey and I feel like I'm, I still get it wrong a lot of the time, but I'm not getting it wrong all of the time. So having, making time for myself, trying new things removes the stress of 
going, well, I want to do that thing, but I can't because of this, or I can't because of that. And I'm removing the word can't from my internal vocabulary as much as I can and replacing it with the word choose, which really helps me. It's like, I'm choosing not to do that because of this. It's not, I can't do it because a lot of the negative language and reinforcement that came from when I was diagnosed of, oh, you're a functioning human. No, you're not. Everything's wrong with you and you need to do this. You need to do that. Otherwise you're going to have a miserable life. I drank the Kool-Aid. I believed it. So I'm trying to re-educate myself now in putting things in place to really help myself grow. It's like watering a plant and, and putting it in the right spot and giving it enough sunshine. You've just got to do it sometimes. Otherwise you do wilt and you do feel tired and run down and like you were saying earlier, just creating a bit of a degree of separation, even if it's just cuddling Pooh Bear. If it works for you, do not feel bad about that. Just accept it and embrace it. You like what you like and it works for you. So love it would be my advice on that because the harder time you give yourself, the worse you're going to feel. The other type of emotional regulation that um, I think it, it's reasonably well known. Uh, I think people need to understand it better, though, is stimming. This is not an autistic thing, by the way, stimming. This is a very much a neurodivergent in general thing. It is important for people to be able to do self-calming actions in order to deal with any situation that has arisen if they feel like that meltdown's coming along. When we're younger, a lot of people will try and stop these actions or mock these actions. Part of, uh, and I use quote unquote, therapy on autism treatment, which is horrifically disgusting way of describing helping an autistic person. They call it quiet hands. And if a child is stimming, they'll put their hands down, go quiet hands, and then they'll reward them. In the past, they would punish them for stimming. Now they reward them for not stimming. Wow. It's like they're training dogs, not children. Literally. And <laughs> it's so horrible because that child will do that because they get a reward from it, but it's not natural. And it's actually causing a lot of mental health problems while that's happening because the whole reason we stim isn't because we're broken, is because we're having a difficult time. And that is our way of fixing ourselves in that broken moment. It's the moment when we're broken, not broken overall. Let's say someone needs to breathe because people do. You are literally strangling them so they can't take in any oxygen. You are taking away the ability for us to breathe, but it's stimming. It's like putting them in a higher altitude so they adjust to breathing with less air. Yeah, yeah that's a good analogy. And then wonder why when you bring them down the mountain, they become so overwhelmed. There's too much oxygen for them now. Honestly, Jordan, the more I learn about early intervention with neurodivergent people. I am so glad I got diagnosed later on. I feel like sometimes I would have been in an even worse place if I'd been put through some of the things that some guys are getting put through today. It, it is definitely a subject 
that we will be going into. I'm delighted to say I have a very good friend who knows so much about this, and she will be a guest on our podcast soon. That episode in particular will be very, very important for people to listen to, to make the right decisions. I think it's good to have a clear view of these early intervention therapies so you can make the best decisions for your children, because I believe that a lot of so-called professionals are guiding people in a particular direction simply because they want to make money from it or because they have that cognitive dissonance that I love to talk about. And they genuinely believe that we are less than human. We are broken and they are mm. somehow amazing because they can fix us. Like we're a beaten up old car and they're going to put us back together and make us go again. It's just the wrong mindset. You know, there is definitely a better way of helping struggling neurodivergent people. Training them like a dog is not that way. And it's important as well, guys. I always think, just from my perspective, it's great to hear both sides because then you know what you truly think. And it's also important as well to get people that understand a variety of perspectives so that you can build your own because you don't want to be climbing a ladder and then when you're halfway up realize you've put it up against the wrong wall yeah i mean the whole point of stimming and a lot a lot of the, a lot of the things we do is to navigate our way through a very very difficult world because of our our hypersensitivity in a difficult environment we need to stim we need to whether it's singing, whether it's dancing, whether it's flapping, whether it's barking. I often wear jumpers that are very soft. So if I'm out, I can just stroke my jumper, rub it in between my fingers, and that's my stimming. Because of the way I was treated when I was a kid, as a teenager, I would have a lot of snaps because of my brother dying. So my meltdowns before that, were considered to be temper tantrums. You know, that's what on the outset they would say I'm spoiled. I remember one in particular where I was on a train back from London. I'd seen Father Christmas and I had a blue balloon dog that was made for me by a clown in the queue when you were waiting to see Father Christmas at Selfridges. They had like an entertainer. It was on the train and it popped. I still believed in Father Christmas, so that is how young I was. And I remember that moment vividly. I just freaked out because it wasn't only the fact that it had popped and I really loved that thing. And at that moment, I was really happy with it because it was actually keeping me calm on the train, which I didn't like anyway. Mm. But I had this thing that I could you know, play with. But the noise of it popping freaked me out and I just lost it. And I can't actually remember what happened after that. Like to the point where I, I just blanked. I have blackout periods. Yeah. yeah. I just don't remember what happened. So that's what I was like as a kid. It would be like something like that. And, and I would just go mad and I would punch walls and I would headbutt walls and I would smack the back of my head on anything really. A, a mm. lot of it was head in, you know, I, I keep hearing this about the head like we keep attacking our own heads and I'm just wondering it's because I've said this before, everything that's going on with us 
is in our head. It's in our brain. And it's almost like I'm trying to beat out the thought or beat out the fear or beat out the noise. Just the noise, man. It's like smacking a rat from out under a carpet. You're just like, bang, 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 get out. Yeah, just out. get out. That's what I feel like. Which is why I think my meltdowns have been massively reduced thanks to the medication, because the medication stops that noise. But it, unfortunately for me, the one of the things that doesn't help with helping me with meltdowns with the medication, and everybody's different, everyone has different responses, it kills my appetite. So I forget to eat a lot of the time when I've had medication or I'm reducing how much I eat because I don't have an appetite. And then I get hangry and irritable. So it's like with one hand, it gives with another, it takes. I kind of just eat for functionality nowadays. I don't often get really hungry, but because I am so active, I mean, even before this, I went for a half hour run. Yesterday, I burned 3,700 calories. God, you make me look static. Yeah, I went for a run and then my nephew came over and we played basketball for an hour. And then in the evening, we went for an hour walk as well with Sylvia and I. And it's just, it's just constant movement. So I do burn a lot of calories. So like after a while, I just feel lightheaded and I'm like, oh, so I make that decision to go and eat. Are you good at eating? Do you have a, a good diet? Are you good with that? It's up and down. When I get depressed and it's normally when I get injured, because I do so much, so I'm getting burnt out and I'm ill, I then won't do any exercise. Then I'll get really down and then I'll eat loads of bad food because that makes me feel better. But then after a while, I feel worse because unhealthy food, you know, it's not bad. It shouldn't be called bad. It's, it's good for my mental health. Fuel is fuel, but there's good fuel and there's average no, fuel. No, no, I mean, it's good for my mental health, you know, chocolate cakes, sweets, crisps, they're good for my mental health. It's dopamine. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. they make me feel better in that moment. But health-wise, they're not good for me. So I'm already ill. I should be eating healthy food to make myself better, but I'm not. I'm eating unhealthy food, which just means it prolongs the process. And I kind of get stuck in a rut. And yeah, then I end up putting on weight in a very, very short period of time, and then I have to lose that weight. And I know people are going to go, no, you, you don't have to. I do, because I don't want to be overweight. I have a weight, and I like that weight, and I'm happy like that. That's me. Everyone's different. But it, it's not good for my health to go up and down like that, and it's not good for my mental health as well. I suppose it can cause like nutritional imbalance. Look, I, I'm not a great eater. I'm I'm very beige when it comes to my diet. When I look at self-improvement, that is something that I could really, really work on. But my taste buds are rubbish. I just don't like crunchy foods. So that wipes out 90% of things that are good for you. I find fruit hard because of the bits. And I don't know, it's, it's like a box of grapes. One could be sour, one could be sweet, one could be soft, one could chew. A jammy dodger is going to be the same every single time I pick it up. When it comes to food, it's definitely an emotional regulator as well. Because if I mm. feel like I'm close to having a meltdown, there is nothing wrong with me going and eating a bar of chocolate. In that moment, it is actually a really good, almost like a, di a diabetic having um, tack. They, they will carry like emergency like fruit or chocolate around with them for that sugar burst. Mm. It kind of feels like that for me when I'm in the middle of a meltdown, when I know that it's happening. Again, this is not, a, not like a written down thing. This is how I see it. 
there are several different types of meltdowns. The number one is like a slow meltdown. So that feeling of not being in control, feeling that I had before this, where every little thing feels like a disaster. Everything feels like it's the worst thing that's ever, ever happened to me. And I am so on the edge and I feel really sick. I feel scared because I don't know what's going to happen next. And I felt like that so much of my life. And as a kid, it's super scary. But as an adult who has kids and a job and I'm in situations where I can't just lose it, I'm holding it in as best I can. And that makes me feel so ill. It's like holding in sick. Literally. And sometimes that release, that burst of anger or emotion, let's just call it emotion, because sometimes that comes out in anger. Sometimes for me, it comes out in crying in tears. In, in those moments, it, it needs to come out. You know, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's in a controlled environment. So we almost know it's going to happen. So I think for me, the best thing that I can do rather than letting it snap, and sometimes I, I have no idea it's going to happen with the snap. If I can feel it coming, then I can take action to possibly prevent it. So I say possibly because it doesn't always work, but I, at least I know that it's, I can recognize the signs when I'm in the middle of a meltdown before it becomes a snap. And then it's like a major meltdown. And that's when you get like the, almost like a hangover from it. Oh, oh do you know what? You've, that was something I really wanted to bring up and I'm glad that you have done it. For me, the worst part about a meltdown is, is the hangover, the come down of having a hangover like this, this meltdown. Uh, the last one that I had was probably the worst one I've had in a few years. Just a, a, a big culmination of things. I'd, I'd lost a family member. My job was changing. I had, had somebody start a fight with me at work. It was like just adding up, adding up, adding up. And the week afterwards, I felt like I had flu. I even did COVID tests because I was like, where has this come from? And I had a cough that lasted a month. It was literally like somebody had gut punched me and all of the air had come out of my body and I was wheezing for like a week. It's like I'd been hit by a car. I just couldn't believe how I felt. That for me is the worst part about a meltdown because life doesn't just stop so that you can recover. It just keeps going. And things that have already added on top of what caused the meltdown aren't going to go away. You've then almost got to like get up off the canvas and keep fighting, even though the fight's finished and the other guy's got his hand raised in the air. You've just got to get back up. There's no other choice. It's hard. Having your back to the ground and the weight of a lot of things on top of you can be exhausting. And pushing it off yourself and creating some breathing room so that you can breathe in itself is burning up spoons. Yeah. Just trying to create space yeah. loses energy. It's like I was saying earlier with having a mask, it's like running two personalities through one battery. You're going to burn through your energy. And what's even worse is that while you're going through that, you're also going through a, a point of like almost self-loathing and reliving mm -hmm. that moment over and over again, 
blaming yourself and thinking, how could I have avoided it? I should have avoided it. And then on top of that, like that's not enough, but oh, here comes the guilt from everyone else. The, oh, I can't believe that you did that or people being annoyed. Having an you. intervention and all this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, Pete. it's just putting the ground and then being pulled out and being told you have to give your own funeral yeah, speech. Yeah, flogging a dead horse. Like we're the dead horse at that moment yeah. and we're being, we're, we're, we're being flogged because people, they think we need to be told. It's their responsibility to tell us how terrible we are and how we can be better. And, and they'll say, oh, well, maybe next time or maybe this time or why did you do that or maybe try to not do that again. And it, when, when people say, oh, uh, don't do that again, well, do you say that to, to like the old lady who slips on ice and, and breaks her hip? You just go, don't do that again. Uh, yeah, well, thanks. Obviously. And it's like you can't say don't ever walk again because you might fall over because mm. you want to walk. I had a moment when I went for a, a photography trip by this beautiful waterfalls and my friend Rick and I were eating. We we're having lunch at this cafe, you know, outside near the waterfall. And a lady sat near us and just started smoking. It's like, we are eating and you are just smoking. It's so rude. It's so thoughtless. It's so, mm. oh, I just hate people that are, if you want to smoke, go and smoke. I don't care. But why are you not, not only are you smoking around me, but you're smoking around me while I'm eating. I've got all this smell coming in. I'm trying to enjoy my food that I have paid for. They didn't even pay for any food. They're just sitting there smoking next to me. And she's lit up and I smelled it immediately. I turned around and I went, um, no. I went like, this is, <laughs> I, said, I just went, no. No. And, and she's like, what? I was like, I was like I'm eating. Why, why would you smoke? Because for me, it's kind of obvious, but some people are so, mm. and I'm just going to say this, some people are so stupid, they don't realise how horrible they are. Do you want me to tell you why this is, Jordan? Neurodivergent people don't just have tree learning. They have tree awareness. So when people are sat around a waterfall and they've got forest awareness, they're going, I'm at a waterfall, not realising that there are two gentlemen sat next to them having their lunch. Whereas a neurodivergent person who has tree awareness will sit down and go, well, they're having their time. I'm having my time. Let's be respectful so we can all enjoy it together. And that is in itself can be exhausting overthinking that. But I think a lot of the time as to why I get wound up is because I have that awareness. The thing that drives me insane is people that drive on the phones. Because oh, rule breaking. It, it, drives, like it drives me insane. And I go... You do not realize you are driving a death machine and nine times out of 10, it won't be you that gets hurt. I have the same because issue. Because you're not watching. I see people driving through Manchester, vape in one hand, phone in the mm. other, elbows on the wheels. <laughs> Steering with their teeth. <laughs> you are a cyclist away from cutting you up from everybody having a problem yeah. around you. It really, it drives me insane i'm like you may not care about the other people that are around you but i do drivers oh drivers uh, are a big yeah. trigger for me and one one of those i mean there's so many things that people do when they're driving because they just they just don't either they don't care 
or they're not thinking, or they're thinking I'm the only person in the world that matters because yeah. you know motorcyclists they, they don't they never think motorcyclists they never think cyclists they mm. they just think cars. I'm always watching. Yeah, I'm always, always checking, checking. My mirrors checking. For all my mirrors. I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking of the unexpected. It's like people who speed to a ridiculous amount and they're like, oh yeah, I'm safe because I'm such a good driver. And it's like, well, how do you know your wheel's not just going to suddenly come off? Especially if you're driving a German car, you know. People I see in Manchester, guys that have maybe had their license two or three years will get an Audi on finance and stuff like that. And the way that some guys drive around city centres is frightening. And the thing is, is if you're a young guy, you've got your girlfriend or your boyfriend next to you in the car and you have a car crash, that three seconds of ego trip of going 20 miles per hour over the speed limit could end somebody's life. It just, the arrogance just drives me insane. Not indicating. Oh, indicating's a pandemic, my friend. I don't get it. Okay, so I'm going to put this out there for the listeners. If you are somebody that doesn't indicate, please tell me why. It's next to your finger. You don't have, it's not, it's, it's not a finishing move in Mortal Kombat that you have to learn mm. a series of buttons that you have to press. It's right next to your finger. It is very, very important. You have to let other people know what you're doing. So why don't you use it? It's a communication tool. Oh, this is beautiful. I put this on Facebook once and was told that it was ableist. Unbelievable. I was told it was ableist because some people just forget and it's not their fault because they're disabled. I'm sorry. If you are forgetting to do something basic like indicating you shouldn't be driving. That's like saying, oh, I forgot that you have to use your brake when there's a red light. I just forgot that. Oh, I forgot you have to slow down. People do make mistakes. People do forget to do things. And if Mm. somebody occasionally forgets to indicate, fine. But I have followed people, you know, I've not followed them, follow them home. Um, <laughs> no, I've, I've been behind people driving and they, they didn't indicate once, like it's not, not once. And what was, mm. was amazing, they were on the motorway weaving in and out of traffic without indicating. And then when they came off the motorway, that's when they indicated. I'm like, oh, so you do know where it is and how to use it. You just decided not to use it while you were weaving in and out of traffic. And yeah, Mm. so, and this is a great analogy. That snap that we feel when we do chuck a controller or punch a wall or burst out crying in like a ball of rage where we just can't take it anymore. That is a piece of straw. And then that moment is the straw that breaks the camel's back. I like to call it buckaroo or Jenga, where I've had all day, someone's been taking out my little Jenga pieces slowly breaking down my patience and then all of a sudden someone and it's the same little things these little things all day are the same little things it's someone just pulling out a little piece of jenga all day long but one too many and it's jenga time it's and it's not good and what i feel when i when i'm in a good place mentally physically, when my food is good, when my exercise is good, when my mental health is good, and I'm on the medication as well, 
I feel like I have an unlimited amount of Jenga pieces and it doesn't matter how many Jenga pieces you're going to take out, this Jenga tower is not going to fall. Never let them get near the foundations. Yeah, yeah but it's not like that all the time. It, do, it just it so much depends on, on health. It really, really does. An environment as well. Yeah, yeah, they, well, exactly. I went to Gran Canaria. Uh, we sat by the, the pool. We hired a cabana and we just chilled out all day. I didn't use my medication at all. Pretty mm. much the whole trip, you know, that I, I had issues when I went to get food because it's an all-inclusive. So you have to go to that sort of canteen thing. You know, Sylvia and I, we help each other through that. So if I'm having a particularly, you know, I'm like, I'm just not feeling it. And I say, well, why don't you get your food? And then you can then tell me what's there because it's that anticipation of not knowing what's there or if I'm going to like it or not. Again, that is also that worry. And that leads me to the other type or the other cause of a meltdown and that is severe anxiety. Have you felt like that when that anxiety has just got so much, you just cannot do the thing you were going to do? Oh, absolutely. I had a period at university where I was doing a theatre degree. I had a falling out with somebody on the course and the kind of person that they were, they then went round to everybody and explained to them why they shouldn't like me or what I would said about them or whatever, whatever, you know, maybe some was true. Some wasn't true. Regardless. I remember having to do a monologue in front of the class and this guy and a couple of other of his familiars, that's what I'll call him. They weren't his friends made a point of sitting on the front row. I got stage fright and have struggled with stage fright ever since I never used to have stage fright. But from that point, there are times when I just can feel him sitting in the front row and I got so anxious. I started throwing up. I couldn't remember my lines and I turned to my lecturer um, who came looking for me and she said, you don't have to do it today. And for the rest of university, unless we were doing a group thing, I only ever did solo projects in front of my lecturers. I didn't have any of my peers in front of me because I didn't want to give them ammunition. And there are a lot of times now when I perform and I hate this, I hate that I've given power to somebody else because of the, somebody that's not even in my life anymore. I shake. And that's the sign for a meltdowns going for me because my hands go and then I start to clench. Oh yeah. And then that's it. It's like everything tightens up and everything comes into a coil. And I'm like, you touch me, you're going into the next row. It's like, I just become this almost like a boiler that needs steam coming out of it. Otherwise it's just going to go boom. That is what triggers meltdowns for me is severe social anxiety. If I'm at work and say if I've got a freelance contract and they've not paid me on time or they've paid me improper and then they're not replying to my messages, if I then have to call somebody and balance the line of not burning a bridge, but also standing my ground, I find that incredibly difficult and will take weeks to get over. And I feel like I get pushed around a lot, sometimes get put into corners that I know I shouldn't be in. And I kind of back into myself because I don't know how to navigate standing up for myself or putting boundaries up without going for the jugular with what I say or coming across as aggressive and abrasive. 
a lot of the time that comes from the fact of I'm really afraid of being embarrassed and I'm really afraid of looking stupid. It is crazy how much simple moments in our lives, simple words said to us, simple things done to us by people who in that moment are cruel. I don't know if they're cruel people. There are cruel people, but I don't know that everyone who does these things is cruel. I just, I just know if more people learnt about our differences, and this is why we're doing this, dude. This is why we're doing this. Mm. This is why this podcast is so important. Is so the things that happen to me, and the things that happen to you, people can see the result of the the what we experience the trauma we experience as as children or teenagers or even young adults and how much that affects us later on in life we are living proof that words do hurt sticks and stones may break my bones mm. but those bones have healed i've i've healed you know i've i've been punched i've punched i've i've been in fights i've had physical altercations when i was younger that doesn't bother me. They, they, they don't sit in my head. They might for some people, if everyone's different, I have to keep saying this, they don't for me. And it doesn't actually, let me be clear, the things that happened to me as a child, they don't sit in my head to the point where they upset me. Okay, so I've, I've had some great therapy. Uh, I think I mentioned I actually met my bully and we had a conversation mm -hmm. You know, I, I healed so much of myself. You know, I've forgiven my birth mother. I will never see her again, but I, I have forgiven her, forgave my dad a long time ago, and I forgive the teachers and I forgive those kids because it gives me my power back, right? It's not the things that they said that still haunt me. It's the PTSD that when negative things are said to me again, negative actions are put towards me, suddenly I'm back in that place and that's mm. when they massively affect me. So it's new things that affect me now because of those old things. That's why I, I, I take the mickey out of my friends and my friends take the mickey out of me or well, I'm trying to encourage them to do it more. <laughs> Some of them aren't that good at it yet. But I've always sort of tried to encourage the banter in my house. I and mean, Sylvia and I's whole relationship is built on just taking the piss out of each other. It really is. We, we do it all <laughs> yeah. the time. It is just our thing. I left a voice message for you yesterday and Sylvia just started talking in the middle of it. And I was like, shut up, you Wally. <laughs> what are you doing she's like oh i didn't know you were talking i was like what did you think i was doing You're like we just we just always mucking about with each other so a lot of the times when people do say nasty things i can just be like yeah whatever mate you know it, it, it toughens us up but we toughen ourselves up it's not the trauma that i got when i was a kid that toughens me up it's how i've toughened myself up as an adult mm -hmm. because of self-care and because of therapy and because of an amazing person in my life yeah, it's, there's a lot to think about with life and how things get added up. I think a lot of the time as well, even though I've been bullied and I do have PTSD from being bullied, the worst bully I've ever had in my life is me. That's an interesting one. And fixing that relationship with myself, learning to like myself, 
and love myself has been a really big catalyst for feeling a lot better, accepting what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. Like with meltdowns, having a breath and recognizing the signs. Yeah, this, this episode has been really great for me, Jordan. I feel like I learn so, so much every time we have a recording session. It's like, I feel like I grow an inch every time we do this. And uh, I hope everybody that's listening, take comfort, reconciliation, just feeling recognized. That's why we're doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this. And, and I hope you continue to, because we are right at the beginning of our journey with this podcast. It's a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation between two damaged individuals and not damaged because of their neurotype, but damaged because of what the world has done to us. Battle-worn. We are. Whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm doing it because no one did it for me. When I was younger, I was desperate for somebody to validate me and to make me feel like I mattered. So learn from our experiences. Yeah, I'm done. I'm burnt out now. We're cooked. Yeah. Thank you very much for once again joining us. And if this is your first time listening to the Neurodivergent Experience, welcome. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Please go back and listen to the other episodes that we've created so that you can start from fresh with us. You never know, there might be something in there that may make you feel really seen. So if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to us for more. Follow us on Instagram at the Neurodivergent Experience Pod. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Goodbye, Jordan. Say goodbye to everybody. Goodbye, Jordan. Goodbye to everybody.